Welcome to Explore Expert Conversations, presented by Realogy, bringing our global network to your front door. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Explore Expert Conversations, brought to you by Realogy. Our show features discussions with leaders across the Realogy brands and the industry at large, with high-level advice for brokers, agents, and investors worldwide. I'm Matthew Ferrara, philosopher, speaker, and real estate industry expert. Today, I'm proud to present, in collaboration with ARIA, the Asian Real Estate Association of America, an exciting panel conversation exploring their latest report on the perception of luxury in Asian American communities. The conversation focuses on helping brokers drive growth and strengthen their engagement with the luxury market. It covers ideas for applying these trends to your own local luxury market. And as you'll hear, the panel will share stories of how top brokers are connecting luxury perceptions and the Asian American community to grow their business and create opportunities for agents and clients alike. So let's listen in to this exciting conversation, and I'll be back afterwards with more. Thanks for listening to Explore Expert Conversations, brought to you by Realogy. Our focus today is on the state of global and luxury real estate. And part of that involves some research and insights from ARIA's special new report on luxury global real estate. That report is packed full of amazing research and insights as to what's happening in global real estate in the Asian American Pacific Islander community, as well as uh, international trends, tons of stuff that you will definitely be able to benefit from. Of course, our guests today will be focusing on some of that, plus their unique experiences in luxury real estate, and especially in the Asian American Pacific Islander communities all around the United States, and of course, by extension, internationally as well. I want to start by kicking off our conversation by introducing you to our amazing panel. So let me just roll through a few of their bios and welcome each one here to our program. I want to start with uh, Jamie Tien. Jamie is a top producing real estate professional at Rodeo Realty, and she provides really the highest level of service to clients that range from first-time home buyers all the way through to A-list celebrities. She's a member of Rodeo Realty's President's Elite Circle, meaning she was named to the top 1% of agents nationwide, also number 1% nationwide with Trulia and Zillow, and featured in Top Agent Magazine. She was also awarded the distinction of the 30 Under 30 a recognition by the National Association of Realtors and A-list top producer, also by the Asian Real Estate Association of America and top 25 on social media by PropertySpark.com. She's fluent in Chinese, specializes in properties throughout Los Angeles and Orange County, and is an active member of the local community and an UCLA alumna. She's also a member of the 2020 NAR Presidential Advisory Group on sustainability. Jamie, we're so happy you're with us here today. Thanks for having me today. I'm so excited to be here. Next up, I want to introduce Jade Mills. Jade Mills is Beverly Hills' top agent, currently ranked number one agent worldwide for Coldwell Banker and the number six agent worldwide for all brokerages. She's achieved the highest sales volume on record for any agent in Coldwell Banker history, surpassing $5 billion in career sales. Recently, over the last three years, she's represented some of the highest record-setting sales in Los Angeles, including the Chartwell Estate, 
the manor, also known as the Spelling Manor, and the Playboy Mansion. She's named the international ambassador for Coldwell Banker in recognition of her relationships with international markets and holds the title of co-chairman of the International Luxury Alliance. Jade, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Matt. I'm honored to be with you. We look forward to your comments. Dylan Wynn is with Live Sotheby's International Realty and is uh, has over 14 years career in uh, helping real estate buyers and sellers throughout Denver's top neighborhoods. He's also a Denver native and consistently ranks in the top 10% of real estate agents across all of Colorado and has a special focus on new construction, new construction home builders, and luxury estates across the Denver metro area. He speaks English, French, Spanish and Vietnamese and serves many distinguished clients from around the world. He's also the current president and founding member of Denver's chapter of ARIA, the Asian Real Estate Association of America, and is a volunteer at area hospitals where he serves as a translator for low-income patients who need translation assistance. Dylan, thanks also for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Super excited. We're glad you're here. And finally, I want to introduce to you Herman Chen, who is probably familiar to many of our viewers here today. He's amongst one of the top 1% of agents in the nation and is associated with Golden Gate Sotheby's International Realty. He has a degree in mass communications from the University of California, is trilingual in English, French, and Chinese, and of course is known, famous for his uh, combination of traditional marketing and millennial marketing uh, techniques. Where have you seen Herman before? My goodness, uh, I have a huge list here because he's a speaker and TV personality on HGTV, CNBC, CNET, Huffington Post, USA, US News and World Report. Herman, we could go on and on. We're so thrilled that you're hanging out with us today on our panel as well. Glad to be here. First of all, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. One of the best things about our panel here today is that you're going to help our audience not only understand the state of the luxury and global real estate in your particular markets, but you're also going to help provide uh, some perspective on some of the insights in that luxury report. Now, I'm just going to put out a couple of the very cool data points in there, and then we'll jump into talking about both the luxury consumer, the luxury market, and the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Let's just start with the fact that the fastest growing demographic in the United States for the last two years running it has been Asian American and Pacific Islanders. There's approximately 23 million AAPI members in that demographic, and it's growing so quickly it will exceed 36 million by 2060. In the real estate side of that uh, data point, what's so amazing and wonderful is that they have a 60% home ownership rate. So this is a uh, part of the uh, American fa fabric of society that is all in on the American dream and at the same time has the highest average house price of all homeowners in the United States with around $445,000 average house price and typically a 35% higher average household income. So when we're talking about Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, we're talking about people who love real estate, who are obviously engaging in the marketplace, understanding it's a way to build wealth, but also achieve dreams. And uh, and the numbers are, are really quite amazing. Let's kick off our conversation, just sort of bouncing off of those stats for a moment here, and just talk about, you know, in addition to those data points, what's really unique 
about the luxury market when it comes to Asian American communities. Let me just start with Jamie on that. Well, I think the luxury market for Asian American communities differs in a couple of different ways. When Asian Americans come to the United States looking for property, I think there's a couple of main things that they're looking for. Number one is a place for their family to obviously have a home in the United States, but for their kids to go to school. So they're looking for a neighborhood that has a really good school district and is good for community for a family. And another thing that they are looking at is the fact that they can own the property in the United States forever and pass it down to their kids. So in China and in some countries in Asia, you're not able to actually physically own the property for more than a certain number of years. It's a land lease from the government. So they're not able to have that generational wealth where they're able to pass it down. Regardless of water in the United States, they're really looking for a showcase property, something that's really unique and different and that's impressive that they can be proud to own when they're here in the United States. Good insight. Jade, you work with a lot of international clients. And so maybe you have some additional insights as to, you know, that connection between the Asian investor, the foreign investor and our luxury market. Well, I agree with Herman and Jamie. And I think that what I'm seeing is when the Asian community comes here, they want our help. They want our advice. They want to make smart investments. And I do think it's a great place to park their money. It's safe. They feel that it's safe. A lot of Asian people that I work with want a place for their families. So if it's a family of four, they want to make sure there's a space for their parents when their parents come or a space for relatives, a separate guest house. They are so family oriented and they want to make a great investment for the future for their families. Now, I think we all understand when we are contacted, we are always saying, where is your money? Because we understand that it's been hard to get it out of Asia. And we want to make sure that they're able to qualify. A lot of people pay cash. We, we want to make sure that they're able to put their money into escrow once we find them something. And there are a lot of people that are just moving around in the Asian community. They're coming from maybe Arcadia, maybe from New York, Florida. We're really seeing a lot of movement in the community, but I think that Herman and Jamie will both agree, they are wanting our area here in Beverly Hills. Great insights. Dylan Wynn, let me ask you a question. I want to maybe put a little spin on this, and certainly you can answer the international aspect of it. But domestically, when we think about the luxury market and the AAPI community, you know, I think uh, Jade hit on it. All of our guests have hit on it so far. Certain priorities rise to mind, a larger property, a place for family, a sense of security, a sense of escape. Are you seeing other special interests or needs or something about how we could, as an industry, continue to help these buyers and sellers locally, as well as around the world, really find what they're looking for in the global segment, in in the luxury segment, excuse me? That's a great question. You know, everything that Jade and Herman and Jamie said, and I know that they're on the West Coast in California, me being in the middle of the country, you know, in Denver, Colorado, we tend to attract a different clientele. Not to say that we haven't past years gotten the Chinese consumer, whether it's them purchasing for investment purposes or for their children that they're sending abroad to attend 
you know, the University of Denver, University of Colorado, School of Mines or whatnot. But I feel like most AAPI consumer that we're getting is the first generation that's born here stateside. And Denver in itself, and I think Colorado attracts a lot of millennials. And I think I forget what report I was reading that was saying that Denver had one of the highest concentrations of millennials and, you know, in the country. And so the AAPI consumer that I see coming into the Denver market, they are looking for the typical luxury, you know, however they, you know, you want to define that. But I think the biggest thing that they're looking for and what we really saw in 2020 was the lifestyle experience without paying an arm and a leg, like the coastal prices. That was a unique motivator is, is seeing them come in and saying, we want the mountains, we want the fresh air, we want the outdoor activities. So that is a, a really, really big factor with our API and even international Asian buyer that's coming into the Denver or just, you know, greater Colorado market when making their buying decisions out here. You know, Dylan, you bring up a good point in terms of that uh, millennial aspect to this. Uh, Typically, Asian American Pacific Islander population is much younger on average. And in general, across our entire country, millennials are forming a huge chunk of the home buying population and not just first time home buyers, although the data shows us that about 10 million millennials are now forming households at a rate faster than in the last 10 years. So here's that wave of millennials we've been talking about for a while. And now, of course, that's also driven by a demographic with great purchasing power, right? Asian Americans have tremendous purchasing power. They are also a great entrepreneur. So they, you know, they're investing also additionally, not just in residential, but commercially, locally, in, in every community. Maybe go to Herman first. Any, any thoughts on how that has evolved both during COVID and in general, engaging with those international clients? It's not uncommon for Asian buyers to buy sight unseen. So it's not so much about keeping in on top of mind for them. You need to be able to be prepared when they contact you and they want to write something and just buy. And I think oftentimes that's very shocking for a lot of American realtors because like, you know, oftentimes you're going there with your family, you're going there a couple of times, but it is not uncommon to buy sight unseen there. So you need to be very tech savvy, you need to do the Facebook walkthrough, all all the WeChat stuff, you need to be on top of that in order to like make them feel at ease. They probably already done a lot of their research online already. Community is very important. So they probably talked to all their friends and family. So your job is to create that connection when you're at the property. And oftentimes they may send a proxy or not, but that is really about being tech savvy and touchless with them during the COVID era, especially. That's a huge point, right? I think we've all had to adapt to being more tech savvy during the COVID era, but that was the case long before. I mean, I've heard countless stories of just the willingness and readiness of Asian investors to, like you said, be on a FaceTime, use WeChat. Dylan, I see you nodding your head. Is this something that's ringing a bell with you? Totally agree with Herman. You have to be on top of your tech game, but even more so with the foreign buyers or even like our out of market buyers from whether they're coming from San Francisco or New York or Chicago, you have to be ready with the stats, right? You have to be able to tell, you know, what's current unemployment rates and what's current appreciation values, even micro data for particular neighborhoods. You need to have that ready. So when you go on those calls, they're ready to make a decision right then and there. Yeah, definitely. I think certainly providing them guidance throughout the actual transaction process is very, very important to the foreign buyers. So, I mean, like Herman said, they often buy sight and seeing just a FaceTime tour or Skype or WeChat, and they feel comfortable with the actual property itself. But it's like the tax implications, how are they going to own it? You know, what are the property taxes going to be? 
maintenance, all of the steps, that's the thing that's more daunting to them. So to kind of answer the question, to keep them engaged, you kind of have to be their go-to for every aspect of the transaction process and make it as easy and streamlined for them as possible. Because, you know, even as a regular home buying it from another country, in a country that you're not familiar with any of the laws, the taxes and things like that. So I think being able to guide them throughout the whole process is really important. So all of you have mentioned the need for having great information, great stats, great research, to be able to understand the both emotional and intellectual desires of luxury buyers, of global buyers, and also of the Asian American community. Let's um, talk about research for just a moment here. I learn things all of the time from their research pieces, from their newsletters, my local chapter. And so please, you know, put it on your priority list to become a member. Uh, you know, even if the community is small in your area, it's large nationwide. And this is a, obviously a hyper-connected industry that we're in for referrals and for business generation and, ju- and just for meeting great people who can help us grow. So putting that aside, let's just talk for a moment about the research that was done in this particular report, the luxury report itself. You know, first of all, I want to maybe go to Herman on this. Why is it important for, for ARIA to produce these kinds of reports on a regular basis? And was there anything really surprising, interesting, stood out for you in this particular luxury report? Well, I'll answer the first part. Representation is so key, especially now with all the Asian hate that's happening. It is all the more important to show that we are a multifaceted demographic and we are growing very strong. We don't know why there's this happy, you know, this hateration happening at, at this point, but anything to educate people, to show them that we're multifaceted, we are part of the community, a part of the nation, part of the global economy is always a positive thing. You know, just stereotypically from the media, we are either ultra high net worth of crazy rich Asians or we're poor. So, I mean, there is a really big middle ground, which is the majority of actually Asian Americans. And so this report actually helps kind of like shed some light on that, plus give a little bit of luxury taste too. But regardless, I mean, it, it's really, really true how um, Asian American market has been really, really resilient and it's only up to our game and made everyone trying to just acquire property even more and more. Dylan, you know, w- with respect to the report, with respect to the overall data points that are in it, you know, obviously a little bit hyper-focused on luxury in this case, but in general, it's just critical to understand the, as Herman says, the multifaceted nature of this market segment. I mean, one of the things that for me was a very early learning, it really just helped open my mind, was like how many countries are incorporated into this research? It's not just China, I guess is a great way to put it. We're glad China's in the report, but gosh, there's just so many different places in which people have emigrated into the United States and built communities and become local members. Any thoughts on the research from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was great. And when they when you see the report, I think you Denver ranked, actually there was two cities in Colorado that ranked as top luxury destinations. You know, what we saw during COVID is the cities that had very tight inventory pre-COVID, like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, and these accelerating prices there, you know, ultimately was like a bomb that set off during COVID because people now could work from home. So it was interesting to see that Denver, and I think at one point, Boise, Idaho was on that list of these emerging luxury markets. As far as our international buyer goes, I forget where I was at. I think it was like some kind of economic panel that with one of the sister cities here in Denver, but a lot of the cities pre-COVID were courting a lot of the Chinese buyers to their markets. I think Denver said, you know what, we're not going to compete with 
a Dallas or an LA to try to fight for the Chinese money. Let's look at the secondary market. So what we ended up getting here was markets that you wouldn't typically think of, but Denver really courted Japan, Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesian buyers to come into our market. And they look at our market now, how people were looking at the markets like San Francisco and New York pre-COVID, again, due to all those factors that have made Denver really great, or even Colorado, you know, low unemployment, low crime. Economically, we were one of the top economies pre-COVID and even during COVID to perform just nationwide. So so it's interesting to see where our money is coming from. China, not so much. It's definitely the secondary markets, Vietnam, Indonesia, Japan, uh, Singapore. Those are really, really our biggest international buyers here to our market. And Herman, I, I noted just before we, we went to Dylan's answer on that, that you wanted to jump in. Something else you want to add to this conversation? It's kind of what Dylan was saying. It's, it's a major reshuffling is happening. So not even within America, like even in China, and I keep talking about China, but there's such a major force financially over there. But really what happened to San Francisco and New York was kind of what happened to China. A lot of money and a lot of buyers moved out of China and they were looking into secondary markets like Vietnam, Cambodia, Singapore. And so, I mean, what was happening here really was happening over there too, but just in terms of countries and not cities or states, it, it was the, the great reshuffling. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point because I also like Dylan's point in terms of cities that aren't necessarily the traditional gateways, the Miami, the New York, the San Francisco, the LA, the Chicago, Boise, uh, certainly Las Vegas. You know, I, I live in Las Vegas and, you know, our Asian Pacific community is huge here. It's growing by leaps and bounds, but it really is something that's affecting all of America uh, much greater, faster. And, and maybe Herman, as you said, it's sort of like first went into the greater circles of China and now it's, it's globally from that perspective as well. Jamie, let me go to you. Any thoughts about both the research and any data points in it. One cool thing about this year's report is that uh, Coldwell Banker was also able to merge in some of its luxury research with the broader research on the AAPI community. Anything stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, Herman mentioned it a little bit, but I thought it was fascinating that, you know, during COVID, there were the Asian buyers weren't able to travel to the United States. And also, you know, there's a lot of the Asian hate crimes going on. I, I found it fascinating that a lot of them were looking to Southeast Asia to invest and they have these, you know, beautiful beachfront properties and even private island properties that you can buy in Singapore and Malaysia and the Philippines and Thailand. And, you know, some of them are very decent prices, especially compared to the luxury prices in like New York and Los Angeles. So, I mean, I thought that was fascinating. I think that we have to work to make it more attractive for the Asian buyers to continue investing in the United States because there's a lot of competition out there. And Jade, let me give you the last word on this topic and then we'll switch gears. Well, we're seeing people from all over the world coming back. I mean, how they're getting here, I'm not quite sure because I think, you know, it's been so hard to travel. But I have clients that just came in from London. I think they had to go through Mexico or something to get here. But we are seeing people back full force. And I think, as both Jamie and Herman just said, the market out of the United States is also booming. But in this report, I was so shocked to see Sacramento, California, Sun Valley, Idaho, some of these places that I would never dream, you know, are, are now the, the new top 10 cities. It's amazing where people are going. And I think that's partially because of COVID that they want out of the big cities. And I think San Francisco, a lot of people have gone to 
my city, Alamo, California, Walnut Creek, or Lafayette, Arinda. Overall, we are seeing so much money coming here. And I think, as Herman said, also, it's like the very wealthy and then kind of the, the middle is almost gone. And then the lower level, which is, is so sad, but I think it's true. What kinds of things are luxury buyers looking for more than ever? And then uh, is there any subsets of that? We talked a little bit about like privacy and security, but we hear a lot about things like the prioritization of wellness, the prioritization of smart features, et cetera. What, what are you seeing in the luxury space, Herman? Kick us off on that and we'll do a quick round on what luxury buyers are looking for. Well, again, luxury is a really wide umbrella. I mean, you're talking about like aspirational luxury, kind of newer wealth. They want all the trappings, obviously, and everything else that their friends want. But I think if you're really, really like, for example, I've got this listing right now in Lafayette, Jade, 25 million. And uh, it has, it's like six, it's six acres, but literally it's a resort. They want the house to be a resort. They never want to have to leave for anything. There's a full on movie theater, like sports courts. It has an in-house beauty salon. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so they just never want to have to leave. And, you know, with food delivery and with things from working from home and a lot of high net worth clientele are, are very mobile to begin with. I mean, it, that's kind of what they want. They, they want everything but extra. Every buyer now wants a Zoom room, a den. They just want everything extra large. And discretion is still very, very key. Like security is so important with all the hacking that are going on and infiltrating. Um, like a lot of my high end properties, they do not want floor plans, no 3D tours, because they are just deathly afraid of people infiltrating their fortress. It's their new reality. Absolutely fascinating. Dylan, you said that a lot of people are coming to Denver for more space, but also, you know, the weather, the mountains, the ease of life, for example, you know, just some of those things. Are you seeing some other important trends in luxury consumer desires in their properties? For the, you know, all those aforementioned reasons, you know, the outdoor space. What's great about Denver is that when it was built, at least the first neighborhoods surrounding, you know, the urban core, you know, they were all designed pre-war. And so I'm not an urban planner, but just, you know, the basics, those neighborhoods were all designed when there was horse and buggy. So no high rises, they're still single family. But what we found is during quarantine is that the neighborhoods surrounding downtown, right? So our condo market, and I think like a lot of other markets, the condo market took a hit during a COVID, but the surrounding neighborhoods around downtown actually flourished. And in Denver, we have so many neighborhoods that are completely revamping, redeveloping, gentrifying. What people wanted is they still wanted to be able to quarantine and not be in a high rise, but they still wanted to be able to walk to the neighborhood park, to be able to walk to the local ice cream shop, to walk to go pick up their takeout. Because when you're working from home, the kids are from home, you want a neighborhood, you know, where the public realm is really good. And so what we found in during that time was on top of what, you know, Herman was saying, all the trappings of convenience and whatever luxury is, people really wanted to be in those neighborhoods that are walkable, you know, that had just corner cafe, the corner wine shop, you know, so not so much the big box, typical post-war suburban, and stuff, they really wanted to be inside the city in those old school pre-war neighborhoods. That was really, 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 and it still continues to be really popular right now. Yeah, speaking of like fortresses and security, one more thing I really noticed with my kind of higher net worth clients is the schools. It's all about privatization now. And I feel like in the past, you are still part of maybe the larger community. And maybe this is a comment about the bifurcation of class in America right now. That's a different conversation. But it's all about creating your own tribe. They're hiring private tutors, private governances, 
sharing maybe with me before other families in the neighborhood and you're all basically creating your own private little school it's all about like insulating yourself in so many ways and of course that's a function of how much money you have and and whatnot but that, that i'm seeing that trend a lot it's about removing yourself removing sounds exclusionary but you know, just just um creating a world for yourself take that how you will <laughs> No, that makes sense. Jamie, you know, as we've heard sort of in addition to exclusive features, certainly things like Zoom rooms and uh, extra space, uh, walkability. Do you think that there's been a maybe even a long term impact on what luxury consumers would look for? And, and not only at the ultra high end, ultra high net worth individual, but even aspirational luxury consumers that really stems from uh, the pandemic. Do you think that those will be not just temporary desires in a luxury property, but long-term changes in behavior? A lot of people are going to continue working from home, at least part-time or full-time. And I think with everything that's going on, and it's really still going on, people really value the ability to gather at their own homes, their own family and friends. So I think two trends that I've seen lately in Los Angeles and probably I'm sure throughout the rest of the country is one, a preference for single family homes versus condos. So of course in LA we have a luxury condo market as well. And I think although the single family home market has been booming and it's been great, the luxury condo market has been struggling a little bit. And especially in downtown LA, the prices are probably down 30%, if not more. And that a huge amount of those buyers were international buyers. I think it's primarily because they want their own space. So I mean, in these luxury condos, you're paying sometimes upwards of two, three thousand dollars a month for HOA fees for shared pools, amenities, you know, gyms and spaces that aren't desirable to use during COVID. So I think we see that shift from condos towards single family homes, just being able to have your own space, privacy and security. Secondly, I think we've definitely seen a shift into the suburbs. So LA is kind of interesting because Beverly Hills really isn't a like a city city. It's really more like a suburb. Only downtown LA is very city-like, but we have so many suburbs of Los Angeles. It's so spread out. And so as you get further and further from the main part of West Los Angeles or downtown, it gets more and more affordable. And I think with the ability to work from home, or just with that desire for privacy, people are able to or willing to go further to find that, their version of luxury. So they're able to buy a bigger property with more land, you know, they're able to get their pool, their Zoom room, their office and all that. So I do think we'll see in the coming years how this shift to the suburbs and the areas around Los Angeles, if it will continue and if this trend from condos towards single family will continue, but I do think that it's uh, more permanent than temporary mindsets for sure. I just want to add one thing. So I truly believe what Jamie and Herman, actually Dylan, we all agree. It doesn't really matter. I don't think the price range of the property, but I think we're all seeing people who want to continue on a little bit, how they've learned to live during COVID. Because no matter what price range the house is in, it seems that people want their pods, is what they call them. Uh, my daughter moved to Calabasas. They have their pods, people that they've been with, people that they feel comfortable with, putting the, whether it's a nanny or a tutor, whatever it is, together. And maybe there are four families that use the same people. And they trust each other. They trust that they're all safe from COVID. 
and they kind of want their own gym, their own home office. And even though we were coming out of COVID, now we have a little setback, they were feeling like they wanted to continue this way. So I do agree with that. I think that people have become more comfortable with, with this kind of lifestyle. Great insights, everyone. I think we could all find an article right now on any news source talking about these very same trends where people are looking for. I want to shift gears for a second. How do I get connected in if I'm aspirational to enter into the luxury market, if I'm experienced but want to take it to the next level? How do you promote yourself? How do you connect not only in luxury, though, but specifically also in the Asian American Pacific Islander? I mean, as I already said, number one would be to join ARIA. But, you know, how do I truly do more than just a marketing plan, but get engaged, promote myself, create the relationships that will lead to uh, success and also being able to help people uh, achieve their dreams. Dylan, kick us off with that. How, how are you connecting and staying connected and creating that growth? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say for someone who wants to break into that sector, I think the biggest thing is that you've got to really want it. And I think you have to quack like a duck. You know, I, I think that the affluent clientele wants to know that you're on at least on some level connected to them, right? I think they can really smell out if you're just there for the sale, right? And you're just doing it just to get a big million dollar home under your pocket. I think you've got to be more of an advisor and to be able to have, again, we talked about being prepared, you know, being able to provide those contacts when they need them, whether it's the financial advisor at Merrill Lynch or, you know, BNY Mellon or Vanguard, you know, to be able to have those contacts, to have your lenders that are ready to work with clients that they'll have hundreds of different pages in their tax returns, you know, because they, they definitely tend to have a little bit more complexities in, in their finance. So I think one, educating yourself and being an expert on, you know, the whole financial planning, the tax, you know, tax implications, what's going on, you know, with 1031 exchanges, because they're moving money and they need you to be on their level. The other part of it on a on a more surface part, you know, I think there's a universal language with the affluent clientele, whether it's in lifestyle, in cuisine, in, you know, where they go, where they travel. And I think you genuinely have to also either somehow appreciate or at least be in that world, right? I don't know if it was Herman or I forget that said, if you're sitting in coach on the plane and your clients in first class, like right off the bat, you've got to disconnect, right? So again, we going back to, you've got to walk the walk, you've got to talk the talk. And and I think if you're out there and you're generally, you know, working that clientele and you, I, I think people will will smell that and, the, and they'll see that, that you understand their needs. So it's not so much about making it about you, it's about making it about them and what do they need. And Jade, how about from your perspective, because I'm sure that not only significant sales, but most of your business has come from that relationship building, that time well spent with you. And certainly while, you know, critical marketing and uh, advertising activities support that, I'm pretty sure that, it, you know, it wasn't a postcard that brought you the spelling mansion, if you will. Any any suggestions for our audience? Well, a lot of times people will say, why do you think you're successful? And I always say, I'm honest. Integrity is the number one thing that you must have in our business. You must do what you do for your client, what you would be doing for yourself. And of course, you have to be their trusted advisor. You have to advise them how you would advise your mother and father or your children. You have to always be doing the right thing. And you have to feel that, that that's what you want to do, because they can feel 
if you're just saying, call this person, do this, you, you must really feel like you want to do the best job for your clients. And I don't care where they come from, whether it's a local buyer. I mean, I have a lot of business from my children's schools, their parents. I mean, I have most of my business at this point is referral. But if you can get one major listing and run with it, advertise it, do a great job for that one listing, that's your first step really into a big listing or into a luxury listing. Knowledge is king. I've heard that so many times, but it is so true. You have to know more than any other agent. When you go on a listing appointment, when you have a new client, you have to know everything because then they believe you, you have credibility. So if some other agent is going to tell them everything that they want to know, and you come along and you don't know the answers to their questions, they're going to move on from you. So knowledge is everything. I think also I did start this group, International Luxury Alliance, which is now worldwide. Referral business is so important. We need to know each other personally, and then we can refer to each other. But if someone asks for an agent in Denver and I go on the internet and I'm searching for an agent, I don't know that person. I don't know who I'm referring to. If I can refer to Dylan and say, I know this is somebody who you can trust. I mean, it's major. And it, it's the same thing for any city, whether it's Jamie, Herman. You need to know your fellow agents and be able to refer and get referrals back. It's a major part of our business. Great suggestions. Jamie, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do. I also want to maybe ask a question related to this. Do I have to also, you know, all of us here have multi-language competencies here as well. Is that a big deal in terms of how you grow your presence and connect not only in the luxury segment and the marketing segment of it? Of course, speaking Chinese is has been a very helpful part of my business in working with Chinese buyers. But I do work with buyers of all different, you know, races and countries and ethnicities. So I think the main thing is to understand their culture and understand what their needs are based on their culture and understand that each culture communicates differently. They do business differently. And so as their agent, we have to be very respectful of that and careful of that and be able to kind of cater to them and communicate with them in the way that they like. So I think that's a really, really key. And then another thing I always say is, you know, luxury in every city is different and luxury to each person is different. I almost don't like the term like luxury real estate because there's no definition of it. And I always tell agents that, you know, don't treat a luxury sale as any different as any other sales price. I mean, the price doesn't make a difference. It's still going to be the most important investment to that client. One of the biggest purchases of their lives, very stressful. And to them, it may be luxury. So either way, you always want to represent the transaction the same way. I think it's all about trust, communication, honesty. That's what you know. everyone's kind of hitting on. If you communicate well with the client, then they're going to trust you. And as long as you're honest and you have good intentions, then they can definitely see that. If you're focusing on closing the biggest sale or getting the biggest commission or anything like that, it, they can always tell. Totally great advice. And Herman, I want to go to you on this because when I think about media, 
and someone who has mastered multiple forms of media, social media, television, writing, speaking, radio, I don't know, short of telepathy, I don't think there's anything you haven't mastered in terms of growing your business in there. Wrap us up on this topic of how I can grow. If you're dealing with Chinese or Asian buyers, oftentimes they perceive realtors differently. They are here, it's glamorized, we're on TV. It's, you know, flashy, flashy there. It's almost like you're working a shop. So just just be prepared for that. So don't be put off with that. Please understand that when you're dealing with that type of mentality, number one. Number two, what Jay said about leveraging your first luxury sale. Yes, absolutely. I started selling really rinky-dink <laughs> track homes in East Oakland off 98th Avenue. Mm-hmm. If anybody knows that area, it is, you know interesting so you start somewhere but the day i got my first luxury listing i leveraged it i I pushed everything i possibly could to essentially make that my story i wanted to own it and what and that listing took me five years to sell (laughs) but eventually so but that period from five years i was able to grow my brand like spin my myth if you want to call it that way and then in terms of how that transaction came to be is also something else jade had mentioned about referrals it was referral from another agent from pacific palisades so again, referral business is so key, especially if you don't know anyone in the business, that is how you need to spin your myth. You need to create your social online presence that is so seamless, so beautiful, so dazzling that any agent or buyer or seller is gonna look you up and just already they're sold for the most part. I mean, it is so important. No, listen, all great ideas. And I think it's all important. We hear about relationships, we hear about knowing the client, being authentic, making sure they understand your trust, making sure that you do your work, right? You put the effort into it as Dylan kicked us off by saying like, this isn't a one-off thing. Be serious about both the luxury segment and being involved in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. So I want to thank all of our panelists. So Jamie Tian, Herman Chan, Dylan Nguyen, Jade Mills, thank you for sharing all of your experience, your insights. Well, that wraps up another insightful conversation on the topic of luxury and the Asian American community. It's exciting to hear how these ideas are successfully creating growth at brokerages across America. I hope you took away a lot of tips and stories that you can apply for yourself. And I invite you to visit Aria's website to download your own copy of the report and learn more about how you can get involved in your local and national community. Thanks for joining us and subscribing to our podcast. As always, if you enjoy what you heard, please be sure to tell others to subscribe as well and rate our show and leave a review. I'm Matthew Ferrara, and this has been another Explore Expert Conversation from Realogy. We'll see you next time.